You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. All right, we are in the book of Hosea. We are looking at chapter 6, and we will head forward from there. In Rome... During the third century reign of a man named the Emperor Claudius, Claudius decreed um, that men and women were not allowed to marry. Uh, The Roman kingdom was at war, and he didn't want people getting married. He wanted his soldiers to fight in battle, and marriage seemed to complicate things for him. And at that same time, in that same day, lived a priest in Rome named Valentine. And Valentine lived and believed in the scripture. He sat under the authority of God and the authority of scripture, and he refused the emperor's decree. And in private, Valentine began to perform marriages. Eventually, he was found out. Claudius imprisoned him and ordered him to be executed. But during his stay in prison, Valentine met and built a relationship with his captor. And he learned that his captor's daughter was blind from birth. And so he sought the Lord's presence and he sought the Lord's miracle in her life and he prayed for this blind daughter. And the legend has it um, that God healed his daughter. God healed this young girl. He restored her sight. And because of it, This daughter's whole family confessed faith in Jesus Christ, and they served him. And on February 14th, Valentine was executed at the order of Claudius. But prior to his execution, his beheading, Valentine wrote a letter to this young girl. And he signed it, he closed it with this phrase, your Valentine. And so during the 6th century, as Rome was transitioning into a Christian nation, The Pope at the time, Glacius, in an attempt to reform the pagan kingdom, enacted a day of remembrance of the faithfulness in the life of what is now St. Valentine. And it was effective for them because in in February, around February 14th, there was another pagan festival that celebrated the life of two twins named Romulus and Remus. They were the founders of Rome. They celebrated them and their adopted she-wolf Mom, uh, What a great festival. I'm sure they were having a howling time for that. Uh, it, it wasn't until the 14th or 15th century that Valentine's Day became synonymous with new love, with romantic love. And today in 2022, it is estimated that, that consumers will spend somewhere around $24 billion on gifts for loved ones and spouses and children and pets how quickly over the course of time things lose their meaning, don't they? Today, Valentine's Day serves as the modern-day temple of love. It's the modern-day temple of our love and our devotion for those around us. And on that day, we make sacrifices to the proverbial love God in order to display our affections and our fidelity towards each other. 
And on that day, we are targeted, in the days building up to it, targeted with provocative marketing slogans that compel to us that we need to show how much we care for them by giving a gift that they will remember. Uh, Marking our love for them, dedicating our love to them on that day, reminding her or him of how much we love them, a remembrance to show what they really mean to us. And so with urgency, right, we are reminded that we must, above all things, never forget Valentine's Day. And many of us in this room have had an epiphany at work, a moment that we go, I did forget. And we rush to the stores. And we, as its recipients of its sacrifices to the love God, we've become conditioned to expect it, right? to be desirous of these gifts and those attentions because the absence of those gifts and intentions says something. It is synonymous with one's lack of love for someone or lack of worth. We, without much doing or convincing, have made Valentine's a day that we remember, we must remember it, and we must make sacrifice on that day for the sins of love withheld in the year past. An appeasement for the love that we know about but we never express, a love that we think about but we never display. And so today as we pick up Hosea 6, we find ourselves once again entering into the folly of God's people. They no longer acknowledge him, they no longer seek him, they no longer know him. They know about him but they don't know him. They believe in him, but they don't behave like him. They want his blessings, his hands, but not his presence or his face. Yet they haven't completely forgotten him. Through their tradition and festivals and laws, they have days of remembrance, sacrifices that they have to make that are required of them. But yet they are blinded by their sin. They are selfish in their hearts. And they begin to treat those days, to treat those moments of sacrifice as moments of appeasement where they remind God that, hey, we really do love you despite the fact that every other day of our lives we live like we don't. It has become like a corrupted Valentine's Day. And so Hosea 6 is a reminder to us of what God does and does not desire. A reminder of that he isn't, wasn't, and never will be be conditioned to expect anything from us that is less than absolute devotion, that is less than absolute steadfastness towards him. First and primarily because he deserves it. And second, and for our benefit, because it's for our joy. And so let's have that posture as we look at Hosea 6 today. Let's pray uh, this morning. Father, we come before you today and we thank you that you know us. We thank you that you created us, that you designed us to live and enjoy you. Jesus, we thank you today that you are the word and that word became flesh. And that Lord Jesus, you poured out your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Spirit, we pray today that you would work in our lives, that you would bring conviction and gladness by your word, that you would move mightily in our hearts, that we would walk with you all the days of our life. And so we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to try to break this down by, in chunks. And so we'll start in verse 1, we'll talk, and then we'll head back into our scripture. So in verse one in Hosea six, it says this, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us 
that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And so there's one of two things that is happening here at the beginning of this scripture. This is Hosea making a plea with Israel towards God, a, a sort of exhortation or encouragement of some sort for God's people to turn back to the Lord. Or this is a conversation amongst God's people that is directed towards God. And I lean towards this being a conversation of God's people directed towards God, mostly because of God's less than impressed response in verse four. And what they are saying here is absolutely true, absolutely good. They are completely in this moment aware of their fragile position. In chapter four, we are reminded that all of creation in that moment is languishing. It's in hostility. They are in this moment admitting finally that there is a problem amongst God's people. There's a problem in the nation and they declare rightfully that it is within the will and the desire of God to tear his people down, to break his people so that he can heal them and revive them again. That God allows hardship and struggle and pain to renew us, to woo us again to his grace away from ourselves, towards obedience in him. And so they are right to believe this, that he can and will restore his people. There is a joy in knowing that all of our hardships and all of our struggles will not be in vain with the Lord, that he will use them all. Yet their admission here isn't from a posture of joy or one of humility. It's from desperation. You know, there's a famous quote that many of you have heard that says that there are no atheists in foxholes, meaning that when we are desperate, we cry out to the Lord. When we lack control, when there isn't another option, when we are without hope, we cry out to God, all of us. The Israelites say, let us return to the Lord. And why do they say that? because they have gone to the power of the day and they have found no help. They have gone to the Assyrians, the leading kingdom of the day, and they've sought help, but they have not found it. They've got no relief from them, no mercy from them, and so it's only out of last resort that they turn back to the Lord. And in verse two, they say this, after two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may believe, may, may live before him. Now, this can feel a bit of a foreshadowing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we read about the third day, he will be risen up. And we take note of that scripture and its implications. But this is a common literary device that is used in the Old Testament. They use numerics to elevate God's knowledge, elevate God's speed and ability. What the Israelites are saying here is that God has the ability And he wants to turn this thing around quickly, that God's reviving presence wouldn't be hate, would be hastened and and meet them as they would turn, return, return to him. And that not only would God improve and revive them, but he would lift up their situations. He would improve their situations. Surely they believe that God will not let us suffer like this. Surely they believe that he won't let us be trampled by the Assyrians that are coming for us. Surely he will crush our enemies and revive us and then restore us 
to our rightful position of power in the world. And then and only then, one of the Israelites confess that when God does revive us, when, does God, when God restores his people, then and only then, then we will live, we will live before you, God. This is king or like our many desirous confessions, right? Where in an emergency, we cry out to the Lord, Lord, if you would just do this in my life. Lord, if you would make this happen, then, Lord, I will love you. Then, Lord, I will serve you. We believe that God wants to give us what we want in our heart without delay. And we promise fidelity to him, promise fidelity to him on the condition that it's granted. Israel has forgotten like we are prone to forget that God is not a puppet and that he's not a genie. And as much as we like to hate it at times and as much as we might mourn its reality, it is for our good that God sits on the throne. It is for our good that God reigns. It is for our good that God has power and control. And then in verse three, the Israelites say, let us know, let us Press on to know the Lord. He, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the springs, rains that water the earth. The provisions and the goodness of the Lord are unending. They are without exception. They are certain. And the Israelites admit what has always been true. Despite their unfaithful ways, despite their waywardness, despite their drifting, despite their idolatry and adultery, God has remained steadfast. God has remained merciful, dependable, faithful to his people. They, in this moment, are awakened again. Let's know God earnestly. Let's seek and press on to know him. This is what God spoke about that would happen through the prophet Hosea in chapter five. At the very end of chapter five, God says through Hosea, he says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, what will happen in their distress? What will they do? He says, they will earnestly seek me. And here in chapter six, they are out of options. They have no hope. And Israel returns to the Lord. They set themselves on seeking after him. They have come back. But they are minus one thing. There is no confession of guilt. There is no repentance. Israel has felt its trauma. Israel has felt the pain. They are languishing and they turn to God for help. They have felt and noticed their wounds, but they have not acknowledged their waywardness and sin. They are apologetic, but they are not repentant. But I want you to notice this, friends. Notice the grace of our God in verse four. He responds to this repentant or confession or, or, or apology in some ways. And he says this, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Now, it's important that you know, and, and maybe you've picked up on this by now, but Ephraim is interchangeable with the kingdom of Israel. Ephraim is, is 
the most influential tribe in the northern kingdom at this time. It's sort of like somebody says to you, uh, talking about states, they say New York. And what comes to your brain? New York City comes to your brain. Ephraim is the center of this kingdom. Israel's welfare is connected to us. They are one and the same. And so God says to both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, what shall I do with you? Now imagine this. Imagine you're on a plane. And some stranger comes up to you in the midst of flight, and they physically accost you. They injure you. They take your phone. They take your money. They take what possessions they can find on you, and they leave you in the middle of the highway in pain. And they run to get away, but in their stupidity, they lack good planning because they realize in this moment that there's no place that I can go on a plane where what I've done has not been seen and known. And so in desperation, they come back to you and they say, sorry, I hurt you. Here's your stuff. Now, would you, in that moment, find enough grace in your heart to look at them and say, you, what shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? No, you wouldn't, would you? You would be burning with rage. And you would want them locked away. You want to put them in the bathroom for the rest of the trip. Or you would glare at them in silent resentment at what they have done. I want you to pause here and notice the words of our gracious Father towards his people. They are like a beloved child returning home in disobedience to an honorable father who with tender mercy in his voice says to his child, fully knowing his ways, what shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? What does it mean? It means I love you so much that my heart is broken and I don't know what to do with all the ways that you've dishonored me. What shall I do with you? And notice what God says here. He says, your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes Early away. God says, you burn so bright, Israel. You burn so bright, but only for a moment. You love me, and then you're all in, and then you're not. You're for me, and then you're gone. There's no loyalty in your love. There's no steadfastness in your love. There's no forbearance in your love. You love me in despair. You love me when you're disappointed. You love me when you get what you want. You love me when the ritual and the calendar tells you you have to. You come and go at your convenience. And this is evidence of their false repentance. They, in this moment, they're sorry they got caught. (laughs) They mourn their situation. But as soon as their circumstances change, and as soon as those feelings fade away, off they go again. And then God says... Therefore, I have honed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. God is saying to them, I have, through the prophets of old, all the prophets, I have tried to correct you. I have tried to warn you. I have tried to give you uh, 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 wisdom. I've tried to get your attention and dissuade you. My words have revealed fully and accurately your darkness. I have shown you to be exactly who you are, unvarnished. I mean, think about the Old Testament prophets. Like, 
how terrible of a job would that have been? Like essentially most of their life is full of them conveying the corruption and the decay of God's people and the people hate them. They hate them for it. God has tried and tried and tried to get their attention. And then he goes on to say, what is the core of the text here in chapter six? In verse six, he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The Greek word here for steadfast love is kest. And it implies mercy, uh, loving kindness, loyalty. The Israelites have made God into a task. They've made him into a day on the calendar. They go and make their appearance in the temple. They give their sacrifice and they leave believing that they somehow have checked the religious box in their life. They have boxed God into a convenient place for themselves to live however they so desire. And then, because I checked the box, I can believe that I have God's blessing to somehow go and do so. Friends, steadfast love has always been God's heart towards his people. Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea at the time. He's actually a prophet in this time in the southern kingdom. Isaiah says to God's people in the southern kingdom, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Over, over, and over, our scriptures convey to us God's message to his people, and he is consistent. He wants his people to respond to his love and his faithfulness. He wants his people to rest in his love and his faithfulness. And he wants his people to reflect his love and his faithfulness first to God and then to others. A Harvard Seminary teacher uh, named Crawford Toy in the late 1800s, he said, what God wanted from Israel was a heart in accord with himself. God wants his people to reflect back a portion of the loving kindness and mercy that he has shown to them. That is all that he wants, friends. That we would respond to his loving kindness and steadfastness and loyalty and that we would rest in it all the days of our life and we would make it the priority of our life to reflect it back to himself and into others. Hosea goes on to say, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They, there they dealt faithlessly with me. And so just as was the case in the beginning, in the beginning of creation, God had dealt faithfully and lovingly with his creation. If we remember, God places them in a paradise and he sustains them through and in his covenant relationship. Yet they turned, they chose themselves, they sinned, and the whole world broke And here again, we see God's people's unfaithfulness. God didn't stop after the garden. He pursued his people. He set to redeem the world. He picks a people. He picks a nation called Israel. He makes a covenant with them. He reveals himself graciously to them. He says that you are my people and I am your God. And they say back to him, you are our God and, and, and we are your people. He goes with them. He provides for them. He protects them. He's merciful. He's steadfast to them. They turn, 
they reject, they choose themselves, they send. God has always dealt faithlessly, faithfully to his people. It is his people who deal faithlessly with him. And here at the end of Hosea 6, God reveals just how shallow their confession is, how fleeting they are, and how faithlessly they have responded. He says, Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. And in the house of Israel, I have seen horrible things. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Gilead refers to the city called uh, Ramoth-Gilead. And it's located on the banks of the Jordan River. It was designated as a refuge city in the book of Joshua in our Old Testament. Now, refuge cities were these places that people could flee to. They could go there to find refuge from accusations uh, against them, to seek mercy. Uh, God set up these mercy cities so that people could literally have justice, that they could wait to have trials and not be executed on the spot. People would go there to live in safety until a trial could be provided for them to prove their innocence or not. It also was a place for all of those who were vulnerable, all of those who were in need, that they could go there and find mercy and refuge. And what God is saying here is that the land and its people have become so corrupt, so unmerciful, that even priests have ignored God's commands. And they have made this refuge city, taken it from refuge, and they've made it a slaughtering pen. Where people have gone to seek refuge and mercy, they've been taken advantage of. They've been extorted. They've been defamed. They've been killed by, of all people, God's own priest. It would be like pastors today going to a homeless shelter and condemning them and then taking their meager possessions, defaming them, and even killing them. All of this God uses to reveal and bring evidence towards Israel's true lack of repentance. They lack remorse. They believe in their words that God will forgive us. They say, come, let us return to the Lord. But there is no admission of guilt. There's no acknowledgement of fault. There's no understanding of sin. And yet they are not unlike us. And we are not unlike them. If we are good, we're quick to apologize. But no matter how virtuous we tend to be, we are often delayed in confessing. An apology is an expression of regret. I'm sorry. A confession is admission of fault. I'm sorry. Because what I did was wrong. I sinned. Apologies are half-hearted at best if they don't admit our culpability and our fault. And why is, so God, why is God so adamant about confession? Why is he so adamant about confession? About us seeing our waywardness, not just feeling our wounds. Doesn't God know this already? Doesn't God know my sin? Isn't he omnipresent? Isn't he omniscient? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he see all? He's, not, he's, he's aware of this, right? And the answer is simple to why God is so adamant about confession. The truth is, is he does see it. But the bigger truth is that we don't. We don't. 
we can't see the consequences of the future, of all the things, uh, all the ways in which we sin, and all the chaos that we've brought into our life. If it, our sin goes unchecked, if it goes unacknowledged, it leads us away from God's goodness and love, from the very source and priority of our life, to know and love him. It takes us in another direction. And in Hosea, we see all the due effects of a humanity that has walked away from the Lord. In our scripture, we espouse King David as this man after God's own heart. And he is full of flaws and missteps. But what he has always been is a model of true confession and repentance for us. David, in the face of being caught in his sin, specifically in the verse that we're going to to read, caught in adultery, caught in murder, responds to the Lord this way. I want you to listen to David in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that I may be justified in your words and in blameless in your judgment. Christopher Ashe Uh, wrote a book called The Joy of a Clear Conscience. And I just want to read an excerpt uh, of this about King David. He says this, suppose I hold a glass of water and I shake it and water spills out. And you ask me, why did water spill out? Our instinctive answer is water came out because you shook it. But there also is another correct answer, which is water came out because water is what was inside of the glass. If there hadn't been water in the glass in the first place, no water would have ever come out of the glass. Surely it came out because it was shaken, but water came out because water was inside. And so if you ask David, this is Christopher Ash, what did you do? What did you do? What did you? He might say, well, I did it because I was tempted, because I was pressured. I was, as it were, I was shaken. My balance was disturbed by outside influence. Things happened to me. I was weary. I looked out the window. I saw this beautiful woman. One thing led another. I was stirred. I was shaken. That's what we might instinctively say. I said that because I was stressed. Or I did that because I was tired or sick. Or my upbringing conditioned me to react this way. But David's answer is this. I committed adultery because there's adultery in my heart. I covered up because there's pride in my heart. I'm murdered because love of self and hatred of others is in my heart. The really shocking thing I've discovered, says David, is that what I did expressed who I am. Evil came out of me because there is evil in me. And so look, I know that it's easy to look at our news cycles today and find evil people who are worse off than ourselves and feel justified. It's easy to look in the news and see Vladimir Putin staring at us and feel better about ourselves in light of his evil. But friends, we are not justified by the world. 
And we do not find joy in being a little less bad comparatively to another. The scripture says, no, not one is righteous, that all have sinned before the Lord. Our joy is in the steadfast love of the Lord, the joy of his covenant and faithfulness to us. And our most flourishing is found in responding and resting and reflecting God's love for us. But you can't be in a relationship with the cosmic God of the universe if we are not, at minimum, honest about who we are. You can't be steadfast and loyal if you're hiding. All God comes to those, becomes to those who hide, who don't see themselves for truly what they are, who blames the world and others for shaking them and causing their sin. All we will ever see God as is a hobby, as fire insurance when we die, a box to be checked, a sacrifice to be made. But we will not love him and enjoy him as he has called us. Proverbs says to us, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And so here's our big idea, friends. God doesn't want half-hearted apologies. He desires confession. He desires repentance that leads to steadfast love in him. Jeremiah the prophet says, O Lord, the way of man is not in himself. The way of man is not in himself. That is, there is no thing in a man that can direct his steps. Friends, our life isn't about us. It's about God. And every day we live is an opportunity to be restored in what is broken in us, to be restored in what is unwhole in us, to grow within us the fruit of a spirit, to be more full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in the fourth. It's another day that God gets to work into us what was lost in the fall. Another day for God to remake us into what will be most natural in us when he returns and his kingdom comes fully. All of life is a grace that God has given to us to grow in our joy and our love for him. But we cannot do it without loyalty to him, without faithfulness to him, without acknowledging all that we are not and all of what is in us so that we might be renewed again by the depths of God's grace and mercy for us. Surprised by his faithfulness, confession is the joy that reminds us that all we truly need is God because he is all we truly have. And because of Christ, our loving father no longer looks down and graciously says to us, like he said to the Israelites, what shall I do with you? But because of God's merciful heart and sacrificing his own son, redeeming creation from its own self, God now stands in the heavens and he looks at us and he says, look what I've done for you. Look at my hands. Look at my scars. I have paid the price for you. I have given you freedom and all the grace that you need to walk away from yourself. Let's pray. Father, help us to love your word. Help us to sense its power in our life. Spirit, will you make it alive in us? The honest nature of our heart is to walk away from you, is to hide from you. 
All of our flourishing is found in you, Jesus. All of our joy is found in you. And we ask that you will do whatever it takes in our life to help us get to the place and the realization that the only thing that matters in life is you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we trust that, as you say, it will not come back void. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.